Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Before we start, I want to let you know that this episode is about suicide. In our show notes, there's a link to a directory listing crisis centers serving all provinces and territories. I'm Kasia Mihailovich. I'm the senior producer of Canada Land, taking over from Jesse for this episode. This is our first Canada Land of the new year, and we're wishing you all the best for 2020. But after all of this holiday cheer, can we acknowledge that we haven't gotten better at talking about how so many of us suffer? That as a country and society, we are failing those of us with mental illness? That so few of us can afford the luxury of treating it or talking about it openly without stigma? Suicide is the ninth biggest cause of death here in Canada. And for every suicide death, the government calculates that there are anywhere between 25 to 30 suicide attempts. Reporter Anna Mailer Paperni has tried to kill herself several times. She writes about these attempts in detail in her book, Hello, I Want to Die, Please Fix Me, Depression in the First Person. The book came out last summer when we recorded and originally ran this interview. Paperni is alive and a practicing journalist. She's a reporter for Reuters and for Global News and the Globe and Mail before that. The memoir isn't all about her. She interviews clinicians, researchers, and people who have also suffered from illnesses that compel them towards suicide. She writes about suicide pacts amongst Indigenous teens, about suicide when you're a parent, and she details a dizzying number of treatments, old and new, for depression and suicidality, none of which have worked for Paperni. She was living in hospital when she came to our studio in August 2019. She was there to receive electroconvulsive therapy and was recovering from a suicide attempt several months before. Hi, Anna. Hi. You're a journalist for Reuters and now author of a forthcoming book with quite the title. So could you say the title and what the book's about? Hello, I want to die. Please fix me. Depression in the first person. It's sort of a first person exploration of depression and suicide and what it's like to want to annihilate yourself. It's also a huge enterprise of reporting. Yeah. (laughs) It's true. And the reason I mention that is because journalists like us are often told about something called contagion theory, that reporting on suicide in some ways could actually encourage people to kill themselves. We also know about triggers, topics that we need to preface really carefully because it could cause people to have terrible reactions because of their trauma or mental illness. So 
I'm worried that even talking about this, even talking about suicide could be triggering to a listener. So how do we have this conversation responsibly? I don't know. With great difficulty, but I think it's imperative for us to have it. I think we can't sort of shirk or avoid the conversation altogether because it's a scary thing to talk about. I think this is too important a discussion and frequently too fatal a discussion to be left on its own or to be left to percolate in darkness. Can you tell me a little bit about what you learned about contagion theory? Because it's actually a lot more confusing and muddled than I thought it was. Yeah, it owes its existence to a book by Goeth called The Trials of Young Werther, in which the protagonist kills himself. And supposedly in the wake of its publication in Europe several hundred years ago, young people were just taking their own lives left, right, and center. And I don't want to oversimplify the causation behind this, but for a long time that was sort of taken to be as a matter of course. The truth is, it's a lot more complicated. Some of the best research into so-called contagion theory that we have was conducted in the 80s and 90s, looking at suicide clusters among youth in the United States. And what it found is that while there were clusters, and many of those clusters were precipitated by coverage of sort of a member of their peer group committing suicide, most of the clusters did not have any sort of precipitating coverage. In addition, what we know is that this is from the 80s and 90s, well before the advent of social media, well before we had the advent of news around suicide spreading the way it does now, news around methods spreading the way that it does now. And it's much more difficult to draw a clear line of causation now than it would have been, say, 20, 25, 30 years ago. So all of this is to suggest that we need to problematize issues around contagion a lot more than we have in the past. Irresponsible reporting on or treatment of suicide and mental illness is irresponsible. It's inexcusable. At the same time, I think it does people a disservice to just assume that they're motivated by such sort of simplistic factors, I guess. And we've seen evidence that responsible, empathic reporting actually doesn't make people run out and kill themselves, which I think is interesting to note. You write that in some cases it seems like it makes people go get help. Yes. We saw in Ottawa, in the wake of these two very high-profile youth suicides, the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario sort of looked at admissions to their children's psych emerge and found that they were overall seeing more people coming in, but they weren't any more acute. So it means that like they were just as serious as they had been before, but there were just more people who were getting help. And so that I think is encouraging to see because it shows that when you approach this in a way that's respectful and compassionate, you can actually encourage people to get help for something that's makes a lot of people feel icky to get help for. 
But that should be an argument in favor of addressing this as opposed to a disincentive. Yeah, that kind of leads me to the question of why you wrote this book, especially given that in this book you say that every time you've told someone you have a mood disorder, you've regretted it. It's an intensely difficult thing to talk about. There is a part of me every single time I open my mouth that's saying like, really? You really want to say that? But for me, there are stupid selfish reasons for writing and then there are journalistic reasons for writing it. The stupid selfish reason I could have just written like a diary, but I found that I needed to express myself and just like write out my own misery. So that was that. But I found from a journalistic perspective, there was a gap in the discourse, both a reporter's perspective, but also from an average patient's perspective going through life. There was a gap that I needed to fill. There were aspects of fighting this illness that I was going through that I wanted to imprint on the page. You've chosen to go into quite a lot of detail about your suicide attempts, like the method and its effect on your body. And I'm wondering why you've made that decision. I had to make it really brutally real for people. And that was just my own personal approach. I think it's too easy to hand wave suicide away. Whereas like, I think what's much more immediate and painful, but important is to give that immediacy with with the methods and and also I think I mean these aren't these aren't suicide methods because they didn't work they're just attempted suicide methods but I think it was important for me to convey how brutally real the attempts was and what they did to me as a person both like on a mental perspective and an emotional perspective, but also just on like a physical and on an organ failure perspective and a sense of what this does to you, what this does to your family, what this does to you watching your family, hating everybody involved. That I think is an imperative kind of conveyance. And it is devastating. It feels like war reporting. Really? Yeah, that's what I thought when I read the opening, I was like, this This feels like listening to like a war report, but the war is like on yourself. On yourself. Yeah. Thank you. I mean that as a compliment. <laughs> I do. Along with the huge amount of reporting of in this book, there's also so much from your own life. So as much as you want, can you tell me what it's like for you to feel suicidal? It's like you're always thirsty and there's no respite from it. There's no break. There's no relief provided. It's like there are these far side cartoons, these Gary Larson far side cartoons, where there's this guy who's crawling through this, you know, stereotypical sandy desert, and he sees this billboard in front of him that says, lost in the desert, dying of thirst, next time use a squeaky canteen. It feels like they're always full. And that's kind of what, what that's like. It's like this taunting constant voice in your head asking why you're still alive and that's painful it derides your most basic instincts 
it's hard because you feel as though you don't deserve to be alive, but you also feel like a joke because you continue to live and you can't end your life and seek the relief that you so desperately feel like you need. You feel like you're punking yourself because if you really wanted to die, surely you would. Surely you wouldn't continually make yourself feel like this without any form of relief. I call it at one point blue balls, but for death. There's this constant prospect of relief, but only to have those hopes dashed repeatedly when you try to realize them. You denigrate yourself because you're taught to believe that this is a shameful thing to desire, and yet you can't make it go away. How long has this been something that's been a part of your life? Eight or nine years. Is suicidality a symptom of depression? Not always. Frequently it is. But it's possible to be suicidal without being depressed or to be depressed without being suicidal. So while it's customarily thought of as being a sort of a, a symptom or a subset of depression, it doesn't always fit that easily. When did you first receive a diagnosis or think that there was something like wrong? I first received a diagnosis in late 2011. That was after my first attempt at suicide. And the first time I, I didn't believe it, I was like, no, that's not who I am because I just want to die, but I'm not, I'm not crazy. And for me, that was, that was a big demarcation because this is how I felt and this is how I conceptualized myself. But I didn't believe that it was a mental illness because that meant that it was treatable and I didn't believe that it was treatable. So I was... I was very skeptical. I mean, I see the logic in that. It's not a mental illness. It's just who just, you are. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of makes sense that you never went to a doctor before you tried killing yourself. It just wasn't part of your life at all until suddenly it, it very much was. Mm -hmm. And you've been a journalist for much longer than that. How long have you been a journalist? Full time for about a decade. But mm -hmm. before then, since like 2006. Not only are you a journalist, you're an award-winning journalist with a super enviable career. And in your book, you write, I swear depression doesn't make me fuck up assignments. Tell me how your depression affects your job and vice versa. It affects it in the most basic ways and also in the less obvious ones. So much of my self-view is bound up in my ability to do my job. In order for me to go on living, I need to believe that I can do my job despite the depression and despite the suicidality. And that's not always easy. There are days I can't get out of bed. So that's intensely difficult. I would like to think I'm getting better at pausing or neutralizing the worst effects of depression on my day-to-day -day job. But it's hard. I mean, I still have, as I say this now, I am off work on disability because of a suicide attempt. And this is the cause of so much shame. 
it doesn't matter how long I've lived with this for, it doesn't cease to be this enduring source of deep-seated shame. So that's tough, but I need to believe and I need to continue to operate on the assumption that this doesn't make me a liability in my job because that would be too painful to countenance. So I tell myself that and I learn in fits and starts how to neutralize suicidality and the mood disorder when it starts to encroach on my professional existence. But that's also continually a challenge. I wish I had a better answer for how to make it less of a problem. In the book, you write about the feeling of chasing an assignment. Is there something about journalism that you think is helpful for your depression or something about the cycle of it that you can work with better? It's hard for me to say because I've never had a full-time job outside of journalism since I have been working full-time. But I do know that the structure of journalism, especially as it exists in the 21st century in North America, in Canada, is for me both a lifesaver and a constant threat that I need to remain aware of its effects on my daily existence, even as I sort of cling to it for dear life. Explain that more to non-journalists. Like, how is it a lifesaver? Because it gives me a reason to wake up in the morning. It gives me a reason to get out of bed. And that's incredibly important when you have an illness that destroys you first thing in the morning and also other times of day, but especially first thing in the morning. So it's important to have this motivating factor propelling you out of bed when every other inclination is calling on you to do the exact opposite. Having a story to chase pushes me forward in a way that other things don't. It's interesting because in some ways, journalism is, is much harder and is often a near fatal challenge because, you know, I don't know if this is something you've encountered, but the existential angst around journalism is often intensely difficult hmm. to surmount. And so that's tough when your health problem is existential in nature. Like you're thinking, is this, is anyone actually exactly. reading this? Is this Does helpful? anything I do matter? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I definitely can relate to that. But at the same time, the deadline is looming. Mm -hmm. And so you don't really have to think about it that hard. You just have to get it done. Yeah. You just do the reporting. You do the, make the episode. That's it. That yeah. can be really comforting. It can be for sure, especially like if you can get it to the end and then you're at home at the end of the day. And th and this is something I'm still trying to perfect, sort of put your own thoughts to bed around whatever you're working on. And that's really, really challenging. Hmm. But if you can do that, so if you can have the thing propelling you forward in the morning, but not keeping you up at night, then that's sort of the best of all possible journalistic worlds. Let's zoom out a little bit. How big a problem is depression in Canada with our fancy universal healthcare system? The prevalence of depression over the course of a lifetime is about 17% of 
of people. So almost one in five Canadians and Americans, this is this is sort of a, a population level, will at some point in their lives experience depression, which is enormously high prevalence. And is especially enormously high when we consider that we know so little about treating it and we're so bad at applying what we do know about treating it. It's better in Canada because of the nature of our healthcare system. But even then, there have been studies out of UBC that have shown that most people don't get what's considered barely adequate depression care. And they're less likely to get it if they're poor. They're less likely to get it if they're people of color. What continually astonishes me is that we apply so poorly the lessons we learn from other areas of mental health care and other areas of health care when it comes to putting people in touch with psychiatric care. Psychiatrists, for the most part, are covered, but they're not available almost at all. And therapists and psychologists tend not to be covered by provincial health systems unless you have private coverage. So you could be paying hundreds of dollars an hour to be talking to a psychologist who could be giving you evidence-based care, but wouldn't but wouldn't be giving it to you in anything closely resembling universality. We fail so horribly people at every possible level. And then we wonder like why this illness, why this disease state is so debilitating for so many. In the book, you talk about disease burden. Yeah, so the World Health Organization basically measures out different causes of diseases and so the ones that cause the most amount of damage to the greatest number of people is considered to cause the greatest disease burden. And globally, the single greatest thing that crowbars you in the knees is depression because of the number of people it affects and the degree to which it just wrecks them. But it's also because we don't stop it in time and reverse its course to the degree that arguably for something so common and so damaging, we really, really should. At one part in the book, you zero in on depression in children in rural indigenous communities. And this is the section of the book that is, to me, the most infuriating and saddening because it's kids, but also because you emphasize how preventable these deaths are, how preventable the deaths of indigenous children in rural communities are. What aren't we doing to lower the much higher suicide rate among Indigenous communities in Canada, particularly among children? There's so much we aren't doing. Like, you, you could look at this and wonder whether this is something we actually take seriously at all, given mm -hmm. how little we do to stop it. Like, we've had suicide pacts of young Indigenous kids in remote communities that were foretold, where you had community leaders say to Health Canada, hi, we have a suicide patch here that we're seriously concerned will result in little kids killing themselves if we don't get the most basic form of intervention out there. If we don't get basically a, a mental health SWAT team to come out and address these children and their needs. And because it was an, at an awkward time in the funding cycle, the funding wasn't there, the people never came out, and little kids killed themselves. 
it's so preventable. And one thing that Dr. Michael Curlew said that really stuck with me is that the single worst thing you can do to a young person who's feeling depressed and suicidal is to tell them that they don't matter. And that's exactly what we've done. We've gone to these little kids and we've said that in the eyes of the government and in the eyes of Canadian society writ large, your needs don't matter and we just aren't going to address them. We aren't going to consider you worthy of the same amounts of funding as non-Indigenous children. How can you convey that message to young kids and then not expect it to have near fatal consequences. It makes me so angry. And to be clear, the kids that are getting this message are like 10, 11, 12 yeah. years old. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You tell their stories in the book. There's three kids you talk about, mm -hmm. you name. And it's at this point that really the bugs and the flaws in the system start to really feel like a feature. It's interesting. We're having this nationwide talk about genocide with indigenous communities and to read about these suicide packs, which were foretold and forewarned to Health Canada with no response other than an acknowledgement that they received the letter. It makes you really understand how this is a genocide. Yeah. And also how you can get in an existential crisis about because we've heard about it. There's reporting on it. But when I read in the book, I was like, oh, oh, yeah, that was a story a couple of years ago. Like what happened? And the answer is. We let it go by because on the one hand, it was too painful to acknowledge fully and because it was part of a litany. And so we didn't we didn't feel the need to address it adequately. That's shame on us. The book also has a huge wide ranging kind of history and current state of affairs about the science of treating depression, which is also turns out to be a bit of a bummer. So. I've got a list here. We've got pills, talk therapy, electroconvulsive therapy, which people should not be calling electroshock therapy. My bad. We have brain surgeries that burn selected parts of your brain tissue. We used to have lobotomies. No more. Why with all of these treatments is depression, a cure for depression still seems really far away and so many people don't get relief? Because for a long time, the cures that people were developing to address depression were sort of happened upon by accident. Like the drugs and especially the SSRIs that people developed, they were originally hoped to treat other things. But then researchers found, oh, look, they, these tend to make depressed people a little bit happier. This must be why depression exists. So if we can reverse engineer these drugs, then that will tell us how depression works and we'll be able to cure depression in a much better way than we've been able to so far. But that reverse engineering was over-optimistic and we were never really able to fully diagram out a cure for depression that relied on this roadmap. So as a result, people just kept cranking out these very, very similar versions of antidepressants in the hopes that they would work better than previous ones or that they would be more tolerable with fewer side effects than previous ones. But ultimately, they didn't work that much better mm -hmm. than what had existed in the past because we didn't really have any greater understanding of depression or of suicidality 
than than we'd had before these drugs existed. I saw you tweeting from the psych ward on Sunday night, which is something, you know, in years gone by, I hadn't seen you do and I've followed you forever. And in that tweet thread, you mentioned trying electroconvulsive therapy, which in the copy of the book that I have, you say you ruled out because of the possibility that it would come with side effects that you can handle like cognitive impairment. So what changed your mind about that? ECT terrified me, but I didn't think I could live with feeling the way I did indefinitely. So the good news is it didn't seem to have, I mean, maybe I'm coming across as really dumb right now. No. But I don't think, oh, good. Okay, good. No. I don't think it had any major, major deleterious effects on my cognition. Unfortunately, it hasn't really improved my mood. So that's something that we're still kind of struggling with. But yeah, for me, I needed to be able to tell myself that I had tried everything out there. And on the subject of choice, your book says that in Ontario, involuntary admission of people with psychiatric illnesses rose 80 two percent in the last decade or so, and that now in BC, the majority of psych inpatients are there involuntarily. I think most people know about the idea of forcing someone into like a psych ward of a hospital because they're, quote, a danger to themselves or others. But can you tell me more about how long these people stay in the hospital, what happens to them there, and why are we doing it more and more? Yeah, this finding blew my mind because I don't think we've seen anything out there that sort of really makes clear why we're having this increase in coercive treatment for mental illness. So in Ontario, for example, it starts out with a 72-hour Form 1, you know, which have increased, which means that a doctor, often at the urging of a judge or a police officer or a family member, thinks that you're, you can't be trusted to make your own decisions. So let's just hang on to you and see how you're doing and see if we need to, you know, uh, hospitalize you for longer. This is the open of your book. Yes. That was my introduction to mental health care. For me, it was intensely difficult to, to be told that I was too crazy to make my own decisions. So even though I understand why the psychiatrist did it, it's still it still robs you of agency. So and then after that comes a form three, which is for two weeks, and that's also increasing. And then a form four, which is for a month, that's increasing as well. Right now I'm living voluntarily in a psych ward, but a lot of the people I'm living with are there on forms. And it's hard. I've talked to a lot of people about like why why this might be happening what to do about it. Most people don't really know because doctors, if you ask them, they claim that they no more readily form people now than they did in the past. Whether that's the case, whether we should take that with a grain of salt, I'm not sure. But it's not a benign increase because this increasing reliance on coercive treatment makes people mistrust themselves, it makes people mistrust the, you know, medical community. And while on the one hand, you know, if you have like a good therapeutic outcome, the results could be very good. You could have someone who gets better, gets treatment, or you have somebody who never trusts doctors again. Like I've talked to people who they had their introduction to the psychiatric treatment through forms. And they never trusted the doctors who were putting them on the forms because 
They didn't feel safe. They didn't feel comfortable. What's life in the psych ward like? It's kind of like Groundhog Day. You have a roommate. You share showers. You know, there are groups. I'm actually missing movie day to come here. Thank you. You are very welcome. Do you know what the movie is? No. So it could be a bad movie. It could be a bad movie. (laughs) I find the better ones have more liberal policies towards visitors. For example, my parents bring my dog over and he saves my life. He is a perfect dog. I've seen him on the internet. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate this testimony. So that makes my life a lot better. But it's often hard just because there are so many things you want to have a say over yourself that you don't have. And that's tough. You can feel like a little kid again, you know, wanting to assert a say over like, you know, when you get which drugs or when you get which interventions. So that's tough. What drives me nuts is that the ECT is only three days a week, but I still have to live in the psych ward like five days a week. And then I get a weekend pass. So that's no good. And then they wake you up early in the morning, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. They sort of insert what's called a saline lock, which is like basically for the anesthetic to go into your arm. And then they pump that into you. And then you wake up an hour later after they wheel you down into the um, what's called the PACU, which is like the post-anesthetic care unit. And then they're like, congratulations, you had a seizure. And that's your experience of electroconvulsive <laughs> therapy? Yeah. Sounds very different than the public kind of imagining of it. It's not, yeah. It's not like one flew over the cuckoo's nest at all. They use anesthetic. Like, the biggest risk of complications is from the anesthetic and all the other stuff they give you. Because the actual seizure is relatively straightforward. And why would making you have a seizure get rid of your depression? We don't entirely know, but we think it's because it kind of, it's like a forced reset of the neurons. So it's like if you took your computer in and the IT person is like, have you tried turning it off and then turning it on again? That's what they're doing to your brain. How much more of it will you go through before you decide whether it works for you or not? I have two more for this week, and I'm hoping to get some FaceTime with the doctors and ask them what exactly their plans are for next steps. Who's the Dr. Silvera that you dedicated this book to? He's my psychiatrist. He puts up with a lot. He's been your psychiatrist the whole time? He was the first person who diagnosed me with depression. He was the person I told to piss off because I thought that he was full of it. And he was the person who made me stay against my will in hospital for the first time around. So he he made my life challenging. But he's also been like the person who's talked me down, not off a literal ledge, but off a figurative ledge many, many times. What like one thing that I would like to get across is how important it is to have really good practitioners and clinicians. They can make the difference between a life that's worth living and that's not. What do you want someone who's listening and has suicidal thoughts to hear from you today, in addition to everything we've just talked about? First, I want to say I'm sorry. That's a really, really horrible way to feel. And I don't want anybody to minimize that. But what keeps me going on days when I don't want to keep going is the conviction that this is an extrinsic problem. So this is not part of who I am. But this is an illness that is external and that is compatible 
I need you to believe that for yourself because it's too painful otherwise. It's inexcusable how bad we are at treating this, but I do think we are getting better. And that's important because you deserve effective treatment. Well, I'm sad that this book has to exist, but you're a fucking good writer and a good reporter, so I'm glad that you're the one who wrote it. Thanks so much, Hannah. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That's your Canada Land. I'm senior producer Kasia Mihailovich. Stepping in for Jesse Brown. We'll be back next week. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadalandshow.com. This episode was produced by Jordan Cornish. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like this show and you want ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, please support us at patreon.com slash canadaland. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. The best way to give someone a gift they'll never forget is to give a gift they'll always use. American Giant makes clothes that just keep getting better with age, like their iconic full-zip hoodie that's designed to last for decades. And a gift they'll wear for years is a gift that keeps on giving. But American Giant makes a lot more than just hoodies. They have impossibly comfy sweaters, classic t-shirts, soft, structured sweatpants, even classic everyday denim, all made right here in the USA, with a quality you'll have to feel to believe. Be a gift-giving giant this holiday season at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code GRATEFULAG23. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com. Promo code GRATEFULAG23.